This is episode 247 of the Prepper Website Podcast, where I connect you with resources that will help you live a more self-reliant life. Today's articles are, It's Looking a Lot Like 2008 Now, and Why Air Guns Can Be an Excellent Tool for Hunting Quietly. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily curation of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey, I'd like to welcome all the new listeners, and if you are not subscribed, make sure that you do that in iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcast network so you never miss another episode of the Prepper Website Podcast. Hey, so let's go ahead and jump right into our podcast uh, today. Many of you who have been listening for a while know this, but those of you that are new might not know that I record the Friday podcast on Thursday evening, so every, you know, the evening before. And I do that so if you want to listen to the podcast on your morning commute to work, or maybe you work the night shift and you want to be able to listen to it on the way home from work, um, you know, you have that available to you. So, um, on Thursday, I'm sure many of you are already uh, you already know this that the Dow fell another you know a thousand plus points, and so you know that is one of those things where I think you need to be aware. Now you need to you know if you have you know for your finances and all that kind of stuff that's that's one thing. But as far as from a preparedness standpoint. You do need to be aware. You just, you just need to be aware that these kinds of things are happening and, and what's going on because they do have ramifications. They can, you know, cause that little, uh, you know, that ripple that, that causes all kinds of other things to go on. So this first article that we're going to read comes from peakprosperity.com and it's Chris Martinson's, um, website. And, uh, you know, they, they do a lot of, uh, economics, but also they do some preparedness stuff as well. But this article will help you. It's not so preparedness related as far as some skill or or something like that that you can you know apply to your preparedness skills. But I think it's information that you would want to know so that you can understand this financial system just a little bit better. And so you'll you'll Chris Martinson's walks through it, so you'll come away with understanding it a little bit better. Why we're in this situation. And then the fact that if we try to do something like that in our own life, right? If we try to do what government and what uh, the banksters do, then we'd wind up going to jail. There's just no way. Uh, we have to be careful about how we manage our money and all those kinds of things. Uh, but you know, the way that uh, they they do things is just crazy. And really, it kind of it, it kind of gets you to understand that uh, you know the the wheels are kind of just off the tracks. Really, it's just like they they're doing anything to kind of make a buck and can kind of keep it all going and stuff like that. So, uh, it, you know, that that might be a little worrisome, but nevertheless, we stay focused on our preparedness. So I think this is a great article. Like I said, it's not directly preparedness related as far as, uh, you know, skills and food storage and wilderness survival or fire or whatever, you know, all that kind of stuff. But it's I think it's very, very important and you need to know it. And so that's why I went ahead and uh, chose this one for this evening. So, uh, or chose this one for the podcast, right? So uh, let's go ahead and get right into this one again. It's uh, coming to us from peakprosperity.com, and the title is, It's Looking a Lot Like 2008 Now. Economic and market conditions are eerily like they were in late 2007, early 2008. Remember back then? Everything was going great. Home prices were soaring. Jobs were plentiful. 
The great cultural marketing machine was busy proclaiming that a new era of permanent prosperity had dawned, thanks to the steady leadership of Alan Greenspan and later Ben Bernanke. And only a small cadre of cranks, like me, was singing a different tune, warning instead that a painful reckoning in our financial system was approaching fast. It's fitting that I'm writing this on Groundhog Day. As to these veteran eyes, it sure has been looking a lot like 2007, early 2008 lately. Of course, the great financial crisis arrived in late 2008, proving that the public's faith in central bankers had been badly misplaced. In reality, all Ben Bernanke did was to drop interest rates to 1%. This provided an unprecedented incentive for investors and institutions to borrow, igniting a massive housing bubble as well as outsized equity and bond gains. It's worth taking a moment to understand the mechanism the Federal Reserve used back then to lower interest rates. It's different today. It did so by flooding the banking system with enough liquid liquidity, that is, electronically printed digital currency units, until all the banks felt comfortable lending or borrowing from each other at an average rate of 1%. The knock-on effect of flooding the U.S. banking system and really the entire world in this way created an echo bubble to replace the one created earlier during Alan Greenspan's tenure known as the dot-com bubble, though sweep account bubble is more accurate in my opinion. The above chart shows the Fed's reign of error. It began with a deeply unfortunate sweeps program initiated at the end of 1994, described below, proceeded to the echo bubble that itself broke in 2008 with even greater damage done and all of which has led us to where we are today. Note the twin panics of 2016 on the above chart. Panic number one occurred when our current bubble threatened to burst. That scared the living daylights out of the big three central banks, the Fed, the ECB, and the BOJ. So that's uh, European Central Bank and Bank of Japan. So they colluded to juice the markets, and boy, did they succeed. Panic number two was the surprise election of Donald Trump. So much thin air currency was created and dumped into the markets after that unpredicted event that we got that the markets had pretty much gone vertical ever since. Note the protractor in the chart above. When the current bubble pops, the one that I have repeatedly described as the mother of all financial bubbles, the ensuing damage will be many multiples of that caused by the bursting of the bubbles that preceded it. That's the nature of these things. You either take your lumps when you should or you pay a far steeper price later on. So far, we've done all we can to postpone any consequences as far into the future as possible. Someday, maybe someday very soon, those consequences will arrive. And at our unprecedented extremes in overvaluation, the price we will have to pay then will be very steep indeed. One of Greenspan's biggest sins while at the helm of the Federal Reserve was allowing the banks to implement sweep accounts for the retail deposit accounts. Banks are required to hold some of your deposited money in reserve, commonly around 10%, to act as a cushion against insolvency risk. This means that if you have $1,000 on deposit at a bank, it's supposed to have $100 of that in cash on hand in case you unexpectedly walk in and demand some of your money back. Since it's only during a bank run that everybody wants 100% of their money back, the Federal Reserve only required banks to keep just 10% of depositor money on hand at any given time. The rest can be loaned out. That's why this is called fractional reserve lending. Banks don't make very much money by holding on to your money. They want to, quote-unquote, put it to work. 
Through the miracle of fractional reserve banking at 10% in reserve, your deposited $1,000 can be turned into 9000 of new loans. Instead of offering you 0.5% on your savings while getting one5 on a treasury bond, borrowing, and pocketing the 1% spread, banks would prefer to lend out 90% of your deposit to a homeowner while charging 4% and pocketing a whopping 3.5% spread. In Scenario A, the bank makes $10 from their 1% spread on $1,000. In Scenario B, they make $355 in net interest profits on your same $1,000 deposit. That's a big difference. But what if that's not even enough to sate the bank's hunger for greater profit? What if banks feel overly hamstrung by the pesky 10% reserve requirement? What if they only had to hold 5% in reserve? Well, then $20,000 in loans can be made against your $1,000 deposit. If we call this scenario C, again, at a 4% loan rate, then banks can make $755 in net interest profit on the back of your $1,000 deposit. Now, that's more exciting. But how to get around the pesky 10% reserve requirement? This is where Alan Greenspan stepped in back in 1994. Facing unwanted tightness in the corporate bond market, an effort was made to inject more liquidity into the system. Greenspan's solution for where that new money should come from was to allow the extension of sweep accounts into retail banking. Now, what's a sweep account? That's a good question. If you have a checking account with a bank, you very likely also have a corresponding sweep account also in your name that you probably never knew was there. Each night, right before the bank's reserve snapshot is taken, all of the money in your checking account is briefly swept into a special sweep account, which has no reserve requirements. So when the reserve snapshot is taken for your bank, presto, there's no money in your checking account. So, as far as the regulators are concerned, your bank need not hold any money in reserve for that account. And right after the reserve snapshot is taken, presto, again, your money is swept right back into your checking account. Sounds crazy, or at least illegal, right? But it's real. From the Federal Reserve itself, we get this description of sweep accounts. Quote, Since January 1994, hundreds of banks and other depository financial institutions have implemented automated computer programs that reduce their required reserve by analyzing customers' use of checkable deposits. Demand deposits, ATS, now and other checkable deposits, and sweeping such deposits into saving deposits, specifically MMDA or money market deposit accounts. Under the Federal Reserve's Regulation D, MMDA accounts are personal saving deposits and, hence, have a zero statutory reserve requirement, end quote. The result of this program effectively removed reserve requirements altogether, allowing a flood of new lending to proceed. Sure, that fixed the corporate bond market tightness, but it also gave rise to the massive stock bubble of the late 1990s, see the red arrow pointing upward on above chart. So I focus so much on the creation of the sweep accounts program. First, this was the original error that the Fed has been responding to ever since, just as a drunk driver responds to a skid by oversteering this way, then that way with the skid, overcorrecting too much each time. If you want to understand today's dilemmas, you have to know this little bit of history. Second, this was the beginning of the we'll change all the rules when it suits our needs regime that has now utterly infected the regulatory apparatus of the U.S. financial system. As a result, for all practical purposes, there really aren't any ironclad rules we, can't, we can count on anymore. 
The corollary to this is that creating a lot of easy money is fun and exciting for a while, but then make things far worse in the end. Why is that? Because you can't print prosperity. Money printing only steals prosperity from the masses and most especially from future generations. That's all the central banks really ever can do. But theft isn't a sustainable form of governance. The central bank's reign of errors will continue and compound until we the people finally rise up and demand something different. What will it take to create enough public outrage to trigger this? Well, how about another massive financial crisis, one that may make 2008 look tame in comparison? Look, bubbles always burst, and there are very worrying signs that the current mother of all financial bubbles is ending right now. What most has my attention are spiking interest rates and oil prices threatening to head above $70 a barrel. These are twin shocks that are extremely over-indebted and over-leveraged economic systems simply can't withstand for long before breaking down. It's 2007-2008 all over again. The warning signs in 2007 were abundant and, for most, completely obvious in hindsight. I was writing about them extensively at the time, and today I see too many parallel features for comfort. It's not the conditions that are exactly the same, but they're so similar that we'd have to quibble to separate them. Whereas 2007 people were borrowing heavily against their rising home prices, today we have record household debt, record auto loan balances in terms of both payment schedule length and amount, record corporate debt, and record sovereign debts. In 2007, the Fed was carefully raising rates to see if they could build up an interest rate buffer. Today, we also have rising rates and declining market liquidity due to reduced central bank QE activity. Note that raising rates today isn't exactly the same as it was in 2007. Save that Save that the borrowing money costs you a little more. So yes, auto loans and mortgages all cost a little more than they did a few months ago. But unlike the mechanisms the Fed used in 2007, today it's not driving interest rates higher by withdrawing liquidity. Instead, it's doing so by simply offering a higher rate of interest to banks on their excess reserves, and that drags the overall rate of interest up. Why? Because if you're a bank and you have the choice between either lending overnight to another bank or lending money to the Fed, which is completely risk-free, then you're going to take the best deal. Right now, the Fed is offering pretty sweet terms. This chart explains why and how the Fed has been able to raise rates without draining liquidity. Without this little feature, unwisely authorized by Congress in 2008, the Fed would have to drain many hundreds of billions of dollars from the system to hike interest rates. Instead, now they can just set the IOER higher as if it were a magical dial that sets the price of money. It's a cool trick, but its newness prevents us from looking to past interest interest hiking cycles for clues as to how this current one will play out. The dynamics are totally different. Now the Fed is starting to drain liquidity from the system too. It's using a process it refers to as reducing its balance sheet. On the front, we see that the Fed has allowed some 30 billion of treasuries to roll off its balance sheet. This simply means that when these instruments matured, the Treasury Department returned the principal to the Fed, thus retiring the bonds, instead of seeing the Fed replace the bonds by printing up more money to buy more of the same securities at the next Treasury auction. While the above chart may look dramatic, it's not really. It won't really impact things much as long as the ECB and the BOJ continue to print and dump more new digital currency into world markets. 
although they've publicly committed to tapering these purchases in the future, so far that's not really in the data unless we squint hopefully at the last little wiggle in the chart below. But what really matters is this new next chart, which shows the combined stimulus across all the major central banks. Since the financial system is truly global now, it matters less what any one central bank is doing, and instead we have to look across them all. When we do, this is what we see. Anything above the zero line means that central banks are still dumping money into the system, so they are not collectively tightening yet, which would technically mean they would be removing money from the system, as they are slated to do somewhere around the beginning of 2019. However, the world's debt levels and stock and bond prices are also massively stretched and elevated, that simply even doing less money printing may have the same effect as tightening. Believe it or not, we're coming off of the largest year of money printing in all of history in 2017. Think about that for a second. Nine years into the recovery and the central banks printed the largest amount of emergency money ever. Which is it? Are we still experiencing an emergency of historically unprecedented magnitude? Or are we years into enjoying a robust recovery as our media and elected officials have been telling us? Of course, we've been writing here at PeakProsperity.com for years about a global economic and financial systems are dramatically more tenuous than we've been told. In my calculation, the markets cannot withstand any reduction in stimulus. If the projected tightening actually occurs, asset prices will begin to fall violently in response. When that occurs, all the central bank's promised plans will be tossed in the trash can. The ensuing rescue efforts will unleash a tidal wave of liquidity that will dwarf the efforts of the past decade and very likely destroy the remaining purchasing power of the world's major fiat currencies. But first, the markets will need to fall hard in order to give the central bankers enough political air cover for such drastic action. Expect to see days where the Dow closes down between 500 to 1,000 minus 1,000 points in a single day, just like today. So is the top in? Are the markets in the process of rolling over? In part two, is this it? We examine the congregating perfect storm of cash of crash triggers. In part two, is this it? We examine the congregating perfect storm of crash triggers, rising interest rates, a fast weakening dollar, a sudden return of volatility to the markets after a decade of absences, rising oil prices, and calculate where t today's 666 point drop in a Dow is the start of a 2008 style market meltdown or worse. Make no mistake, these are sick, distorted, deformed, and liquidity-addicted markets. They've gotten entirely too dependent on continued largest from the central banks. That is now ending. After so many years of such extreme market manipulation finally gives way, the coming losses will be staggeringly enormous. The chief concern of any prudent investor right now should be, how do I avoid being collateral damage in the coming, coming reckoning? Click here to read part two of this report. All right, so uh, guys, like always, uh, from Peak Prosperity, they will put out an article, and then if you are a member, uh, subscribing member, uh, you can you know read their part two, and uh, you know if that's something. If you have money, in, you know, in the stock market, and uh, that's something that you're interested in, you might want to go ahead and do that. And you are a little bit more conservative and concerned about what's going on. You might want to know what uh, Peak Prosperity is saying, you know, on their membership site. And, uh, you know, getting that information there. But, uh, you know, there is a, a lot of truth here. Now, the part, the, the part that we need to really think about here is that a lot of people have been saying 
you know, hey, something, the financial system is going to crash. The financial system is going to crash. And it, it hasn't. A lot of people are like, quite frankly, like, you know, when you read Chris Martinson and when you read people like Michael Snyder, sometimes they'll say we're very surprised that it hasn't. The, the thing, and I think Chris Martinson, he kind of uh, referred to it here, is that some of the things that they're doing, they're changing things as they go. And so the same system doesn't apply as it did last time. And some of the things are, you know, there's going to be some surprises here because there, there's no real historical data as far as because they've manipulated certain certain aspects of it. So Martin Armstrong, who I speak about uh, very frequently, uh, he has a downturn starting in, in 2018. So uh, we're still kind of early, I think, uh, looking at some of his things, his articles. And uh, there will be an, uh, a recent article posted on Prepper website here for you. Um, he has this going down starting in November of 2018. It just kind of seems like that's where it really starts to, to pick up speed. And it goes like that till 2020. So, you know, we might be encountering a downturn for a while. But either way, I think this speaks to the fact that, uh, you know, some of us here listening to the podcast, I mean, maybe you have money and you're invested in the stock market. A lot of us probably aren't. The, the real understanding comes from uh, or the real thing I really wanted to, to help you to understand is how kind of, you know, how did we get here? Right. Uh, some of these things, some of the things that you might hear about, maybe like on on the news or mainstream media or, or other articles that you might read about uh, some of some of these things that they have done. The other thing, though, is that although people might not be heavily invested in the stock market when there is panic that usually filters down to everybody else. And so that's when, uh, when there has been panics, that's when I have seen uh, things, you know, like, you know, even the, the numbers of people visiting Prepper website shoots up because people are starting to be concerned. They're going onto the internet and they're searching and, you know, they're, they're hitting the website, right? And so that's a, a kind of a, a key for us to realize that, you know, people can start to easily panic and just people panicking can cause trouble. And so that's one reason why we continue to be uh, aware of what's going on, why we need to, you know, not freak out. You know, the end of the world is not going to happen uh, because the Dow drops, you know, whatever, a thousand points or, or whatever. The end of the world is not going to happen there, but it can cause panic, especially if you're seeing it happen over and over and over again. People can start freaking out a little bit about that. That's one of the reasons why you definitely need to be uh, on the lookout for, for what is going on and uh, what is happening. So uh, that's, again, that article is over at peakprosperity.com and it's entitled, It's Looking a Lot Like 2008 Now. All right, guys. So our next article is comes to us from preparednessadvice.com. And every Friday I try to read, I go into the archives of the Prepper website and try to pull out an article that is uh, relevant and something that I believe people would like to hear. I know uh, I have received some emails and, and communication from some of you on social media that you know, firearms is one of those things that people like to hear about. And so I want to go to, uh, to this article here on preparednessadvice.com and read this article about air guns. And uh, a lot of people will say, okay, that's a you know, BB gun, pellet gun. Uh, you know, what, what are you talking about, Todd? Why are we even talking about that? Well, the fact is that there's a lot of use for 
uh, pellet guns and air guns and air rifles uh, in emergency preparedness. And so this article does a good job of kind of giving you some information there. So uh, let's go ahead and read this one. This one's entitled, Why Air Guns Can Be an Excellent Tool for Hunting Quietly. And again, it comes to us from preparednessadvice.com. I received some excellent comments and emails on yesterday's post on hunting quietly without attracting the attention of your neighbors. Several of them dealt with using 22 subsonic low-velocity pistol rounds or silencers. I cannot disagree with these ideas. They all have merit and a place in the overall scheme of things. However, there are several reasons that I lean towards the use of air guns rather than conventional firearms for this purpose. One is the price of ammo. Pellets are cheap. Around here, you can buy 500 for under $10 if you wait for the sale and they are available. Compare that to 22 cal or any other ammo price. You can afford to stock a lot. A second reason is that most of the game you will be hunting will be small game, like rabbits, birds, squirrels, etc. The cheaper, less powerful air rifles are adequate for hunting these animals. For larger games, such as deer, you would want something with more power. You can purchase air guns in most states, even California without paperwork. Anyone can own one. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives has jurisdiction over firearms. The U.S. Code specifically prohibits any federal, state, or local municipality from declaring an air gun to be a firearm. Not only do the federal firearm laws not apply to air guns, they cannot be applied by law. The law is United States Code Title 15, Section 5001, BB Air Gun Paintball Imitation Firearm Preemption. The sections of interest to us are sections G1 and G2 at the very end. Read their very clear language. G. Preemption of state or local laws or ordinances except exceptions. The provisions of this section shall supersede any provisions of state or local laws or ordinances which provide for marking or identification inconsistent with provisions from this section provided that no state shall 1. Prohibit the sale or manufacture of any look-alike non-firing collector replica or, or an antique firearm developed prior to 1898 or 2. Prohibit the sale other than prohibiting the sale to minors of traditional BB, paintball, or pellet firing air guns that expel a projectile through the force of air pressure. To me, noise is a big issue. Some air guns are quieter than others. I will concede that 22 cal subsonic rounds can be just about as quiet as air guns. I have attempted to do research on the subject and have found three sites that address the subject. Here are their links. And so the links here, I did check them. You know, this article is older uh, from 2014, August 2014. So I did check those links and they are all active. So if you're interested in going there, uh, decibel ranking of air guns, air gun sound level measurement, and how loud is loud, decibel loudness comparison chart. There are mainly three different types of air guns. A spring-powered air rifles, often called springers. This type of air rifle uses a spring to compress air in a chamber. The two biggest advantages for buying a spring-powered rifle are power and ease of use. With a spring-powered air rifle, you only have to cock the gun once to achieve maximum power. Most are rated at 1,000 FPS or feet per second and can be used for small game hunting, target shooting, and pest control. Adult males will have no problem cocking the rifle, but if you are buying the air rifle for your younger kids under 14 or wife, make sure they can handle the cocking pressure. Springers are probably the noisiest of the air gun types. Second one is pneumatic air guns. 
They use compressed air for power. There are several ways that the air can be compressed. The most common pneumatic air gun is the multi-stroke. These air guns are designed so that several strokes of the pumping mechanism forces air into a chamber where it is held under high pressure. Each pump stroke forces more air into the chamber, which increases the pressure, which in turn increases the velocity of the projectile. There are also air guns that have a pump similar to a bicycle pump that can be charged once and then fired multiple times. These are nice since you can have a fast second shot. Some of the pneumatic air guns can be pressurized from scuba tanks and by other means that I have not covered since they would not be viable under emergency conditions. And then CO2 powered. While these are fine under normal conditions, in an emergency the CO2 cylinders would not be readily available. A couple of other factors that can influence how much noise your air gun makes are 1. The ultra lightweight alloy pellets. If you are exceeding the sound barrier approximately 1,120 feet per second, you will get a loud crack. Using heavier pellets can solve your problem by slowing down the velocity of your pellet. Another possible problem could be that your rifle is dieseling. You should never use a petroleum-based product in the barrel or compression chamber of a spring-powered air gun. This can cause an explosion caused dieseling. This is loud, not good for your rifle, and can be hazardous. Get an air gun and play with it. It is cheap shooting, and you will find it can be a good hunting weapon. All right, so just a couple of responses there, but definitely something to think about. I mean, you can find air guns, uh, you know, at Walmart, and you can definitely find them, you know, on Amazon and any sporting goods store. But uh, you know, you can stock up on on all kinds of ammo uh, for your, uh, or all, all kinds of amounts of ammo for your pellet gun. And uh, you know, uh, it's fun to shoot. You know, fun to knock down some tin cans and, and or aluminum cans and things like that. But it's also if you need uh, something to uh, you know to hunt small game, definitely one of those. Uh, you know, I was reading another article that I was uh, thinking about. Uh, you know, posting here or reading in uh, for the podcast, and it talked about you know one of the things is uh, you know practicing your shooting and your you know your your ability to aim and all that kind of stuff. Another one is even just pest control around your garden. If you have a big garden and, uh, of course, you can't always get close to the animals to get rid of them uh, because they keep eating your your stuff and, of course, they run away from you. But if you have a a nice pellet gun, you can shoot them from far away and take care of them that way and and maybe not completely, you know, kill them if you don't want to do that, but maybe scare them enough to where they won't come back. I don't know. Maybe you might want to go ahead and and, uh, do them in. So uh, you can go ahead and have some rabbit stew with whatever you're cooking up uh, in in the garden, right? So anyway, uh, it's a good article. Go check that out, out over at preparednessadvice.com. And, uh, you know, I think you should really consider an air gun for your emergency preparedness and and uh, having it around. I think it is a, a great option. And for under $100, I think you can get into to, to a decent one. Well, all right, guys, that's it for episode 247 and another week of podcast in the books. Thanks so much for being a part of the Prepper Website podcast and hanging out with me all week long. Uh, I do appreciate your support. I do appreciate when you share out our episodes and uh, that, you know, you send me those emails and comments and uh, connect with me on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. And so I just want to say a big thank you there. Hey, if you're looking for more preparedness information, some articles to read, we have plenty of that over on the pre- on prepperwebsite.com. So not the prepper, but prepperwebsite.com. And, uh, you know, you can come over there and we 
uh, post articles 24-7 every single day. Uh, it, it's You're, you're going to find new content. And so if you are looking for some more preparedness stuff, uh, come on by. But if you can get a chance uh, to go out this weekend and uh, you know build some skills or have some fun or relax, uh, make sure you do that because everybody needs to do that uh, every every weekend to uh, recharge and relax and, and get focused for uh, the next week coming up. So, uh, hey, we'll, we will see you on the other side of the weekend. With that, choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until next week, stay prepped and aware. Peace.